Hello, this is Richard Russell, and welcome to Creativity and Composition. I'd like to start today with a quote from the New York Times. This is a music review by Alan Cozen, which was published on May 5th, 2006. And the quote goes like this. The composer Brian Current toyed with speeds and textures using the orchestra in much the same way that a pre-computer electronic musician might use a tape deck. Different sections played at different tempos, with passages accelerating like a locomotive coming up to speed, or slowing down like a turntable unplugged in mid-phrase. Occasionally, almost from nowhere, a brief passage of straightforward symphonic chords would emerge, and then dissolve into the changeable fabric. End quote. That's kind of interesting, isn't it? This was written about a performance of a piece called Symphonies in Slanted Time by Brian Current. And doesn't this sound like a piece you might like to hear? And that brings us to the subject today, the importance of critics and reading reviews. I have heard lectures by some pretty big-name composers in the last few years, and so many of them say they don't like critics, they don't read the reviews. I can understand that, you know, I can really sympathize. After all, you put all the hours into writing your piece and you assemble some musicians to play it, and probably at some cost out of your own pocket, you schedule a performance and wait for the boom. And here comes a critic who gives you one negative sentence, and there goes the whole thing out the window. There's an old saying, those who can, do, while those who can't, teach. And I have on occasion wondered if it might not be those who can do, while those who can't become a critic. Music, or just about any art form, is very subjective after all. Who gets to say what is good and what isn't good? That hardly seems fair. And hey, who knows, maybe the critic who comes to hear you is just having a bad day, and this gets reflected in published comments. Next thing you know, everyone has read the review and gets the wrong opinion about you. And let's face it, since reviews are subjective, critics can simply get it wrong. I remember reading the review for the movie The Sixth Sense in the New York Times, and the review was pretty bad. And I thought, aha, here's another one of those Bruce Willis movies that aren't any good. Well, you know what happened. The Sixth Sense became a huge major hit with a lot of buzz about that surprise ending. Word of mouth took over and everyone was talking about this movie. Well, I figured I'd throw my money into the pool and go see the movie for myself and form my own opinion. And, you know, I thought the movie was terrific. What in the world was that New York Times critic thinking about The Sixth Sense? Maybe he had something bad for dinner and had an upset stomach while watching the movie. Who knows? But I'd like to say a few words in defense of critics and the idea of published criticism in general. And also I'd like to offer up some guidelines about how to read reviews. Andy Warhol used to say, Don't measure your reviews in content, measure them in inches. Meaning, if the New York Times writes a really bad review of you, but it covers five columns and ten inches of precious newspaper space, obviously, you must be pretty important. And on the flip side, I've been to concerts where I heard a fantastic piece of new music, and the review the next day gave that piece of new music just one sentence. One sentence! And what's frustrating about this is that the reviewer might instead write about whether the conductor waved his arms too much, or if the pianist had a funny facial expression, or if a cell phone rang during the concert. Sometimes you read a review and wonder whether the critic is focused on the proper thing. But I think reviewers, at least at the big newspapers, are aware that they yield some power. 
After all, when someone from the New York Times writes a review, there's that monolithic quality of the New York Times says, as if that was the final judgment. But I think the best critics are respectful of this power they have. I've read critics who sort of pull their punches when they're writing about a younger, unproven talent, for instance. And many critics have a policy of not reviewing student recitals or compositions, even though they might attend such concerts just in case something interesting happens. Now, here's one reason why I read a lot of reviews, especially of new music. I can't possibly be at every last concert, first of all. I don't have all that time, nor all that money. Critics provide a snapshot review of what happened. Sometimes it's good to think of reviews as less about whether the music was any good, but instead more like a news report that captures the journalism side of things. Imagine you were a critic who sat there at that famous premiere of Stravinsky's Rite of Spring. Maybe you as a critic didn't like the music and wanted to write a bad review. But if nothing else, you've got to report on something that was new and unlike anything you've ever heard. So we as readers ought to read a review not just for the value judgment of the music itself, which is very subjective, but also to keep up on current events in new music. And that's one major plus of criticism that's easy for us to forget. Reviews provide us a historical reference for the things that happened. Reviews exist today of Beethoven's premier performances, for instance. That can provide valuable insight into how Beethoven was perceived in his own time, and it provides us a you-are-here record of what happened. Most biographies you read of Beethoven will make reference to what critics had to say at the time. And here's another reason I like to read reviews and have great respect for their craft. Music is a tricky subject to talk about. There's this great quote, and I'm not sure who gets credit for the quote, but it goes like this. Writing about music is like dancing about architecture. How true that is. How do we give words to musical things? With painting, we can talk about whether it's colorful, whether it's representational or abstract, etc. With a movie, we can usually find good words to describe it. We can say, hey, I really like that part where the boat blew up, or wasn't it cool when that guy took off his mask? But you know, Take that part of Beethoven's Ninth Symphony in the Fourth Movement when the male chorus sings Side umschlugen Millionen. That sends shivers up and down my spine every time. How can we find the words to describe that emotional response? Critics are charged with doing this, and often on a very tight deadline. You've got to give the critics credit for being able to do that, and frequently they have to do it rather instant analysis of music as well trying to understand a piece's context and place it in some sort of historical realm. They know full well that most readers haven't been able to go to the concert that they are writing about, and the best critics will remember this in their review and try to put you there. And even if the review is music I haven't heard, I sometimes get ideas about what is good and what is not good in my own music. Critics can help give shape to what my own musical values are, the way to do this is to decide, as you read a review, what you do and do not agree with. And hey, like Brian Current's Symphonies in Slanted Time, you might even become aware of a piece you want to hear that you wouldn't otherwise know about. You might even use some of the descriptions as jumping-off points for your own composition process. The reason I am inspired to do this podcast is a review I read in the New York Times of a concert of new music by a string quartet ensemble that calls themselves Ethel. 
This review was published May 16, 2006, and was written by Anthony Tomasini. In this review, Mr. Tomasini had to tackle many divergent elements of this concert. For instance, the concert featured music that incorporated many divergent styles from jazz to classical to rock. Mr. Tomasini states that the risk with music that mixes styles so blithely is that after a little of this, a little of that, the piece can seem not much of anything. Now, this is a very provocative statement, don't you think? Do you agree with this or not? Whether you agree or not, this comment in the review has probably got you thinking about your own music, especially if you like to mix styles. Again, he said, mixing styles so blithely is a little of this, a little of that, and the music can seem like not much of anything. Well, ask yourself, can such music be successful? Does the critic have it right? Mr. Tomasini also addresses the issue of amplification. Apparently, this concert featured microphones on the string quartet. Now, I did not attend this concert, but by coincidence, I did attend a concert recently that featured a string quartet all mic'd up and processed through a computer. The piece that I heard, which was by a different composer, was really not very good, I thought, but I couldn't tell you why exactly. For the concert Mr. Tomasini heard, he writes, when a string quartet is given an electronic boost, it tempts a composer into thinking that something big is happening when the music is fairly obvious. Boy, I happen to think the critic is absolutely right here, and wow, he put into words exactly what I thought about the piece I had heard just a few weeks earlier. Folks, if you want to write a string quartet with microphones and electronic processing, make sure that the music is being served by all this. I recently rented the movie Memento from a few years back, and if you haven't seen it, I'll try not to ruin it for you. The movie rather famously told the story backwards, which was quite interesting to watch. But I remember a reviewer writing that the problem with the movie was that if you told the movie in a straight, linear fashion, the events of the movie aren't really all that interesting. That's the problem with the electronic string quartet. Don't let the special effects serve as a substitute for actually having something to say. And that's what Mr. Tomasini seems to be saying in his review. And here's another comment from Mr. Tomasini's review. For a different composer, he complains that he wanted more content. He writes, quote, There is a difference between creating a layered texture with overlapping riffs, something akin to multi-tracking, and writing four-part counterpoint. End quote. Well, that's obviously true, and I have complained before in earlier podcasts that stringing together loops and multi-tracking is not the same thing as composing. But you know, writing four-part counterpoint isn't the opposite. So I get the critic's point here, but I take exception with the way he worded it, suggesting perhaps that one need be fluent in counterpoint in order to be a composer. Okay, here's another idea that's a good business idea for your career. I just read about this promising new ensemble that seems interested in performing contemporary works. Hey, Ethel String Quartet, right? Maybe I have an electronic string quartet that might be right up their alley, or maybe I want to visit their website and see if they commission new works. So, read reviews. See what the critics are saying. Keep up on current events in the new music scene. Just be careful that you don't let the critics do your thinking for you. Use their comments as a guide to firm up your own opinions and put into words what your own convictions are. Or react against what the critics said and firm up your own opinions about what you value in your own music or the music of your colleagues. 
Sometimes you can agree and disagree with a critic all in the same review, even if you haven't attended the concert. So, don't you agree? Let me know. Head to my website, www.rdrussell.com, that's R-D-R-U-S-S-E-L-L.com, and click on my contact button. Drop me an email, let me know what you think. This has been Richard Russell, and until next time, this is Creativity and Composition. Keep creating. Keep creating.